Well, good evening. I'm so thankful that you're here tonight. And, um, you know, uh, let's pray together as we dive into our study tonight. Lord Jesus, we need you. We love you. We're grateful for your presence. We're grateful for how you move in us, how you prove yourself over and over and over again. And Lord, I am so thankful for that. I pray that tonight that you'd give us wisdom and you'd give us understanding. You'd give us insight to your word and that you would, you would guide our steps. Lord, we trust you and we love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, um, if you need some notes, we, I think we have some more copies back there. Uh, also, I would just want to let you know, I have notes if you missed some of the sessions before. I have sessions one and two up here as far as the blanks go. Um, I know that they, um, we've been posting them online, and so I'm not sure where they are. I've not heard them yet, but are they on there? Okay, all right, good. Uh, I've not gone and, and, and listened to them yet. But um, tonight, uh, we are going to tackle uh, this very challenging question, which is the problem of evil. And, and you know, tonight, what I want to do is kind of um, uh, pull back the curtain on life as a pastor. Uh, I've got up here, and there's a lot of, I brought some visuals tonight. Um, And, um, you know, I I don't understand always the hand of God. And and for whatever reason in in my ministry, God has called me to the forefront of tragedy. And, um, you know, um, I just finished a dissertation which was focused on training a youth pastor to lead a family through the funeral process following the death of a teenager. And as I look back on my journey of ministry, when I was young in ministry, God had, has seemed to have just thrown me into the throes of grief and, and death and teenage death. I, I look back on my journey, and I've probably done 20 funerals of younger people throughout my ministry. Um, and, and it's forced me to wrestle with the problem of evil. And, and I brought a couple of examples, you know, as uh, today's a, 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 an, an important day in the life, life of the Richmond family. They go to our church. And today is Spencer Richmond's birthday. And Spencer died uh, uh, about a year, over a year ago and, and uh, was a 16-year-old wrestler at Owasso, phenomenal wrestler, and was uh, the, the, right after he got his license, his first night with his license, he had a car accident, and, uh, and it was a head injury and, and tra- traumatic, and he lived for, for a, over a year. But then just, it was just difficult. And, and today, uh, we sent flowers to Christy and, and just remembering Spencer, you know. And, and I'll never forget that because I, I flew to Atlanta as he went to be with the Lord. Uh, because he had got, been transferred to a hospital in Atlanta. And, 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 you know, as a pastor who is called to minister to people in those settings... I couldn't explain why. I don't have an answer of why God did this. You know, up here I, in my office, if you go to my office, I have several funeral flyers that are, that are close to me. Um, this is a funeral flyer of Nathan Johnson, um, your teammate. And, uh, 
you know, Nathan was a uh, college baseball player, phenomenal athlete. Uh, his brother, Tyler TJ, as we called him, played for the Ambassadors. Nathan was in a was in a tough man contest in Oklahoma City. Uh, won his fight, his semifinal fight, I believe, and um, walked over to the corner, collapsed, and then never woke up. And uh, had, probably had a head injury from the fight before. Uh, and it was just one of those tough men contests that, you know, he, was, he is, his um, fiance was about eight months pregnant at that time. And, and uh, it was just a very difficult situation. And I went to Ada, Oklahoma, where I, my first church I served in, and, and uh, preached his funeral. And that was difficult because, you know, I sat with his young fiance who's pregnant, and she looked at me and said, Chris, why? And, and I, I didn't have an answer in that moment. But, but in both Spencer and in Nathan, I watched the Lord move and, and help us. I watched uh, baseball teams come together, and, and it was just phenomenal. Um, this one, this right here is Justin Sullivan, and this is something I have in my office. They gave this to me after his death. If you go to UConn High School's baseball field, this is really big uh, on the field or in the, by the concession stand, and it's, it just lists Justin's accomplishments. And, and if you know my story of the ambassadors, um, that, I was a young youth minister. Justin suddenly passed away. He was about to be drafted by the White Sox. He, at 11.30 on June 3rd, 2002, the head coach at OU left him a message saying, Justin, I want you to be a Sooner, full ride to OU. And, um, and he died when the back wheels of a tractor trailer broke off a truck, hit his car, killed him instantly. And, and a lot of people said, why? Chris, why did this happen? And... Um, and that was a very difficult thing to be catapulted as a young youth minister in, in f- with a kid that we were praying together. You know, he and I were praying together about where he's going to go to school. It was a difficult time. You know, then right here, this, was, this happened just a few months ago. Uh, this right here, um, David Valorand was... When, we, when Justin died, we started a baseball team like the Ambassadors. And, 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 and David was the first coach uh, that, I, that I ever hired to, to run the Ambassadors, to help coach the baseball team. Because here I was, a tennis player. I didn't know baseball. I didn't know the game. I, I, I can tell you the strategy of a tennis match. I can tell you the emotion of a set, a game. Uh, I, I, I know that. I know tennis well. But when it comes to baseball, I didn't really know that. I, I was new. I, I had a heart to disciple kids. And, and I, I called Coach V. Or we had our first meeting. Coach V comes. And I said, nice to meet you. Man, you're a state champion baseball coach. Would you help us? So he came alongside of us, and we started this from scratch. And, and, and you know, he was a guy with me that, that as I – watch the Lord do things that absolutely blew my mind, I would hit him on the shoulder and go, can you believe that? Can you believe we're watching God do this? I called him one day, not being a baseball guy, I didn't realize how big of a deal this is, okay? Um, I got a call one, one day from uh, Arizona, and this guy said to me, 
would you come to spring training and speak to all these baseball teams in, in Phoenix? And I've already got it worked out for you to go through every baseball team and speak. I was like, man, I can't. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm going on a mission trip. I can't. I called David. I was like, man, look, I'll pay your way. That's how I started. I'll pay your way. Would you go do this for me? And he was like, <laughs> I've been wanting to do that like since I was a little kid, you know. And he's like, "Yeah, I'll go, I'll go." And so he didn't even tell his wife. He said yes, and uh, and forgot to tell her, and told her a week before, "Hey, by the way, I'm gonna be gone next week to Arizona." And uh, but he went and spoke and and represented the ambassadors. And just a few months ago, um, he was killed um, when he had stopped. If you saw on the news. Uh, uh, in Yukon, Oklahoma, he's the principal at Okarchi Elementary School at, um, this year, and, and uh, there was a rollover accident in front of him. And he, his wife and his daughter and his son are in the car. Coach V gets out, pulls four people out of a car, um, puts them in his truck. It's raining. No one knows why. He goes back to get something out of the car. There was another lady that stopped. And as he's walking back, another car was out of control, flipped, crushed him, killed him instantly. And his wife gets out, and, and she was like, she knew he had passed away. And, and just a few months ago, I had to stand and preach his funeral. And, and, and you know what's difficult about being a... a the call to pastor people is that when I preach a funeral of people in our church, this is, these are people that I love. I know. It's not like I'm distant and I'm just this, you know, far away person that doesn't, don't have, I don't have emotional attachments. I have deep emotional attachments. And so this question that we are going to embrace tonight and face tonight is one that is inescapable in my heart as a pastor. It's inescapable for us as believers because I can't tell you how many times I've been in the middle of some of those tragic moments and difficult moments. And honestly, in many times the question of why is unanswerable. But, but the Lord has taught me through my journey that it's not the question of why, it's how. How do we make it through this? How do we put one foot in front of the other? How do we keep going? Because what I've discovered through all of those journeys is that God is faithful. Now, if, if I can tonight, I want to, if you'll follow along in our notes tonight, I want to I just kind of process this biblically for, for a minute. You know, when it comes to the problem of evil, and, and I hear this a lot, there's a lot of times uh, people have this attitude, well, if, if you're sick or if something bad happens to you, what's your problem? What, what have you done to bring this on yourself? What, is it your fault? And, and you know, there, there's a lot of questions that, that circulate when bad things happen, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad theology in the world, where this health, wealth, and prosperity idea that, and this is prevalent in Tulsa. Tulsa has historically been a mecca for this, this false theology that if you follow Jesus, everything is going to be uh, 
be, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, you'll be prosperous. Now, I'll be honest with you, the greatest thing you can do in your life is follow Jesus. But it's important for us to always remember that this world is not our home. All through scripture, the Bible points us to, to the fact, like Peter says, 1 Peter, we are strangers here. And so often we get comfortable with just this life. Now, we, we forget the words of Jesus in John 16.33. I'll put it in, in, this note, in the notes here. John 16.33 says this, I have said these things that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. And this is a reality that I have faced and, and I continue to face because when I, I think about, you know, these are all up in my office and I, I put them up on purpose because it, they're meaningful to me. These, these faces mean a lot to me, but, but it's also one of those moments that cause me to remember that God is faithful that God has been faithful, that in the midst of the difficulty, I have known the peace of God. I've experienced the peace of God in the midst of great trouble. And I want you to understand that. And it's important that we grow through that and we recognize that just because something a difficult time comes, it does not mean that God is not faithful or God is not present. And this is something we, we need to understand. In the world, Jesus told us that in the world we will have trouble. We will face difficult times. But we should take heart because Jesus has overcome this world. Now, now I want you to also look. There's a, there's a verse there in blue under that praise principle that I want us to look at. James chapter 1, all through Scripture, we see this when James says, uh, Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Now, when's the last time you went through a, a really big trial and you're like, All right, I'm so joyful today because I'm facing this really difficult time. But James who knew trial, who knew difficulty, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so it's important for us to press on to maturity. And to become believers who are genuinely mature in our faith. And this is a weakness that I see in, in, in churches all over, is that, is that believers aren't growing on to maturity. Now, um, I remember when we were potty training our kids. Anybody remember that those days? Those are terrible days. Are you all in it? Uh, those, those are tough days. I mean, and I can remember Robin being so frustrated, and, and I said, look, she won't poop in her pants when she's in middle school. I promise. We'll get this. And, uh, and that word has come true. That's never happened to my knowledge. And so I'm grateful. But, um, but you know what? If, you, if, if I say that I'm struggling with potty training with my kids and you find out, well, my kids are one, you'd be like, ah, it's normal. But if I told you, yeah, she's an eighth grader, you'd be like, really? Shouldn't you learn that by now, you know? But, but the truth is, we sh we've got to be growing spiritually. So often, believers stagnate spiritually. Now, one of the reasons that happens is they, um, a lot of believers 
just expect their pastor to feed them. And I want you to know you, we're pushing you to more than this. Or, or they, they choose to go, well, I don't want to wrestle with the hard things. Well, what we're doing in this class is wrestling with some of the hard things. Because I'll tell you, in my journey of ministry, I've had to face some very, very hard things. But I want you to know the Bible speaks to the reason for evil. Why does evil take place? Now, we're going we're gonna to tackle this today from a philosophical perspective in how you address this, but we're also going to look at it from a biblical perspective, and that's what I want to do right now. Now, first of all, when it comes to the Scripture, um, um, I want you to think about that idea of praise. Okay, this is just a way to memorize it, okay, or to think about a reason for the problem of evil. Like, for example, um, let me move on here. Um, when it comes to the, the, the idea of praise, why does evil take place? The first biblical concept of evil, why does evil take place, is the suffering or the punishment principle, which is this idea that suffering is a description of God's judgment on the sins of people. Now, there's a reason that a lot of people think, oh, well, if, if something bad happens happened to me, maybe I'm being punished. Now, Historically, this was something that God's people thought about in Deuteronomy 30, uh, 15 through 18. This was an historic Jewish, uh, Jewish idea and, and concept because, because they, they really, that, that passage in Deuteronomy says, if you, essentially a summary of that is if you do what is right, God will bless you. If, if you disobey, you're going to face the punishment of God. We see that in Galatians chapter 6. You reap what you sow. And we see this, and, and this is something uh, that happens all the time. There are times that evil takes place because of sin, and sin always hurts. Now, it's important that, that we recognize that, but see, sometimes people stop there and go, well, uh, that's the reason that, that your child is sick. I have a good friend, Jeremy Freeman, who spoke at OBU Chapel today. My daughter texted me, and he preached there today, and Jeremy's son died of cancer, and uh, it was terrible. It was difficult. And there were people that actually walked up to him and said, your, your son died or is sick, and he's not getting better because there's sin in your life. And that's ridiculous. Though there are times punishment takes place because of sin. The Bible speaks, you reap what you sow. That's not always the case. So I want us to understand that. But understand that, that the punishment principle is revealed in Scripture. Another reason for evil, the redemption principle. It's the idea that God uses suffering as a way to specifically communicate the message of salvation. Now, I want you to think about this. Um, like, like, we see this in Scripture like Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, Jesus suffered. He said, Isaiah wrote, he was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. But see, this redemption principle, sometimes suffering happens. Sometimes we face evil because God is communicating redemption. Like, I'll be honest, as, I, as, I, as I've wrestled with why Justin died, I don't really fully understand why he died. Um, I, I still connect with his mom and dad. I'm, the, I'm on the board of the ambassadors in, in a life worth following, and we, we are, I'm still involved with that ministry. And, and we've talked many times when they've said, you know, it's awesome all the things that have taken place, but I just miss Justin. His mom said that. I've just, I just miss him. I wish he was here. 
And, and, and we, we, those of us that have children can relate to that. But even though that's been a tragedy that I don't fully understand, I have been amazed at the number of people that have come to Christ on baseball fields since Justin's death. And so I want us to understand that sometimes suffering comes, sometimes evil comes, because God has a goal of communicating salvation to the world. And this is something we see in Scripture. I've seen it in my life. The, the next one, the adversary principle, is this idea that Satan uses, uses evil to tempt people to reject his plan for their lives. Now, now we face an adversary, and I want you to understand that. That, that as a Christian, as a Christ follower, we recognize that we have an enemy. John 10.10, 10, a phenomenal verse you ought to memorize, says, the thief comes but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I mean, I mean we face an adversary. And, and, and Satan comes against us. Satan fights against us. And I guarantee you, there is evil in the world. One of those reasons, it's one of the tools that Satan uses to cause a world to not believe in Christ. And, and we face him. And we've got to learn how to engage this spiritual battle. Like Ephesians chapter 6, uh, when it says, put on this full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And it's important that we wrestle with some of these things, these concepts, and we push ourselves intellectually, we push ourselves spiritually. You know, coming up in March, we're going to begin Lent. And, and our focus for our church during this Lent season is on the disciplines. And we are going to push one another to learn to be spiritually disciplined because we face an adversary. Now, and I want us to recognize that because that's a principle that I, I think is a, is a reason for evil existing. Uh, I there on, on, a, on the, the word praise is the incarnational principle which basically is the idea that suffering deepens a person's personal relationship with Christ by producing a greater understanding of his presence. You know, there are times that we suffer, and when we go through difficult times, those are moments that you really come to recognize the presence of God. Have you ever experienced that? It's in suffering, it's in difficulty, that the presence of God becomes real to you. The time, I mean, I mean, I felt this at David's funeral. Um, as I was standing on the platform, I had just gotten up, and there were, it was unbelievable, there were, uh, there were 2,500 people at that funeral. And I'll tell you, I, I, I played competitive tennis, and I felt pressure before. I've, I, there have been moments in my life in college and in, I've never faced your pressure, because Rob's pressure of his sport, you break your face. Uh, he can tell you about that if he wants. But, um, but tennis is a little easier. Um, but, I, but in that moment, I said, would you all stand? And I'm standing there as his whole family comes in, and I can't describe to you the pressure that I felt in that moment. It was a, because because here I am, I'm getting ready to have to talk. And as I'm standing there watching his son Jackson come in, watching Tanya come in, his wife, watching a grieving family, 150 of them, I walk up to that microphone, and I'm, and my friend is here. And I was, I started to lose it. 
And I stepped back and I took a breath. And in my mind, in my heart, I said, Lord, I need you to help me. And you know what? He did. I can't, I can't explain it. It was like in that moment, I just felt like the Lord said, get up there. I was like, all right. And I did. And it, God was with me. God help me. And see, this principle is the idea, the incarnational principle. We see this in Hosea and Jeremiah in the Old Testament. These, these were guys that, that were, had difficult lots, difficult tasks in their ministry. You ought to study those books, how Hosea married a wife that was an adulterer, adulteress, and it was difficult. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Uh, you see this in Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, as, as Paul describes his testimony of, I was beaten, with, I, was, I was shipwrecked. He gives a, a kind of a, a list of all the things that he went through. And, and I'll tell you, there are times as believers, we will face difficulty, but I want you to know when you face those times, it's a moment that you will come to know the presence of God. And you lean into the presence of God. You look to the presence of God. That's one of the things that happens when evil takes place. The S, supernatural principle. Suffering takes place to accomplish a supernatural work of God, often unexplainable on this side of eternity. Now, we see this in the scripture through Job. Job was, I mean, Job's friends came up to him and said, hey, curse God and die, or, or what did you do? You repent. And Job was like, I, I didn't do anything. But it was this, later on, we know the end of the story. Job in the moment didn't. But, but it's this supernatural principle that God is at work in supernatural ways. And there are times believers go through suffering. And, and God does something supernatural that we may not ever understand until we get to heaven. Now, I think about the martyrs. You need to buy this book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It is a phenomenal book. Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's an historic book and tells stories about people who were martyred for their faith. And it goes all the way back to the first century. And I would challenge you to get that book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. But you see this supernatural principle at work in Job's life. You see it in Jesus' life as Jesus suffered on the cross and the disciples didn't understand it. The disciples were like, why did he have to die? Like Deuteronomy 21, Galatians 3 says, cursed is someone who dies on a tree. Jesus died on a tree. And they were like, oh my goodness, he's cursed. Everything didn't work out. But then later on, they see the supernatural principle at work, how God was accomplishing a supernatural task through that suffering. And I want you to understand that there are times we may suffer and God is, is, is accomplishing a supernatural task through that suffering. That is something I see in Scripture. And, and you know what? I honestly believe that's going to be something that we will see in heaven. Um, there, there are so many stories about that have taken place, place through the ambassadors where it was just the Lord reminding us that, hey, I'm with you. Uh, the first year, I'll tell the story real fast, but the first year we started, we had no money. We, God sent us these phenomenal baseball players. We, we, we put together a mission trip in two weeks. And 
It was our last game of the first season of the Ambassadors, and we had just watched God sue. I watched God provide $25,000 in one day for us to go on this mission trip, and I just could not believe it. I could not believe I watched God do that. And, and we went on this mission trip to Nicaragua. We had this phenomenal experience. And our last game of the season, we're in, we're, we're in Nicaragua. We're playing this team. And right before the game starts, this tropical rainstorm hits. And it was unbelievably fat raindrops. And, and every Nicaraguan took off. They were like, we're out of here. And, um, and all of our baseball team, we just said, take the field. And so Sydney Sullivan, Justin's little sister, gets a bat, and she goes to bat. This Murph gets to the mound. He throws a pitch. She hits a double in the rain, pouring down rain. We, we just gave him a hard time uh, for a girl hit a double on him, but she was a good athlete. But, uh, but then we, our guys were sliding in the mud, and if you've ever been on a baseball, baseball field, in the United States, you can't do this. When it's raining, you don't go slide into second in the mud because it messes up the baseball field. But we did. And so it was the most fun. It was so incredible. And, and we all, we have this, I have this picture in my office of all of us coming together on the pitcher's mound, taking a picture, and we're just soaking down, sopping wet. The bus driver wouldn't let us on the bus. We had to walk back in the rainstorm. We were muddy. It was un- an unbelievable way to end our last game. And we're sitting around the circle doing our final share time. And Sydney says, Justin's little sister says, you know what? The song that Justin, right before he got on the interstate, as he, right before he died, he, he put this CD in and he goes, he told Josh and Elizabeth, I want you to hear this song because it's really ministered to me. It's called When the Rain Comes by Third Day. That's what he was listening to the moment he died. That song talks about there rain comes in your life, difficulties come in your life. And as we were sitting there and Sydney reminded us of that, I said that at his funeral, I'd just forgotten. It was like the Lord whispered, hey, I'm in this whole thing. See, sometimes suffering comes, and I can't wait. I cannot wait to get to heaven because, you know what? There are still moments that my heart breaks because I remember those moments so well. But but I I just know that when we get to heaven, we're going to realize God was in this whole thing. And God, I I wouldn't change a thing. Supernatural principles at work. Last one, evidential principle. That suffering occurs as a period of testing, giving evidence to an authentic faith. And and the bottom line is this, that, that, that sometimes suffering comes to develop a faith that lasts. It's like what Peter said in 1 first, in first Peter chapter 2. And I want you to think about this. He says, um, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but, all, but also to those who are harsh. For what is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But... If you receive a beating for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. Listen to this. 
To this you were called. Now think about that. When's the last time as a believer in Christ you thought, I'm called to take a beating for my faith? Um, To this you were called. For Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then it goes on. He says, when when he... um, and I've thought about that in my life, that I would be following in the steps of Jesus, that, that, that he said that, that he committed no sin. When Jesus was on the cross, he committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And then he says, instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that's who we are. A people that say, God, we are a people that will trust you. We've entrusted ourselves to you. So now let's, let's get ready to wrestle through this problem of evil. So this is one of the most difficult topics that um, you ever have to wrestle with as uh, someone who does evangelism, someone who does apologetics. Um, This is a very difficult um, topic. When you start to look at uh, the types of people you run into um, doing evangelism and apologetics, uh, you start to find people who have um, all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of experiences. Isn't that true? And so when you start to, when you start to look at them and you start to uh, think about um, how in the world that you're going to relate to them, um, in, my, in my experience, whenever I run into people who have um, emotional obstacles to coming to the faith, that is one of the most difficult individuals um, to see conversion to see movement it takes a long long time um so as we as we talk through this as we start to start to wrestle through this and 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 i love that chris gave us a good biblical perspective um to start our start our time with today but just as last week we set some some good expectations that we weren't going to remember most of what we talked about right remember that uh this week we're going to talk about in my opinion one of the most difficult um subjects in apologetics, in theology, in conversations with real people. And so I want us to have the expectation as well that when you're dealing with people who have emotional issues, specifically dealing with the problem of evil, you're probably not going to see much fruit right away. Why? Why do you think that? Why, first off, do you agree or disagree? Why do you think that's true? Is there any way we can turn this up a little bit so I can get off of it? Why do you think that's true? Okay, awesome. Yeah, that, that's definitely um, uh, a response that we find. And, and, and who are they mad at? Yeah, which is interesting, isn't it? 
you start to think about it. You start to drill down on another level, and you start to think, who are you upset at? Who are you angry with? And a lot of times it is that they are angry with God. Um, have you ever heard uh, the, the, the idea that he who has low expectations is easily pleased? Have you ever heard that before? It's true. All right. Um, you can give the analogy, and I like to use it every once in a while, that if, if you tell somebody that they are going to uh, go to a prison cell, and that prison cell is going to be about four foot tall, so you can't even stand up straight in it, and it's going to be damp, and it's going to be cold, and it's going to be drizzly, and, and, and just nasty, right? No bed, nowhere to sleep. Um, well, they get to this place, and they flip on the light switch, and it's actually a Motel 6, and the cockroaches scatter when the lights come on, but they're thinking, what? This ain't so bad right? But in comparison, if you tell them, hey, we're going to go to this, this wonderful suite, um, and it's, you know, they're going to have chocolate-covered strawberries, it's going to be wonderful, and you get there, and you flip on the light, and it's a Motel 6, and the cockroaches scatter, what's going to happen? You're disappointed, aren't you? So a lot of times when we start to think about this, we start to talk about this, uh, one of the premises that, that, that you, you, you need to recognize is that our expectations as human beings plays into this. All right, and here's the thing. Chris touched on it just a little bit. I want to I want to emphasize it again. It's a huge error in Christianity and in modern thinking um, that once you, once you become a Christian, that you can expect certain things. What are those expectations? You're favored by God. Nothing. No sickness. No poverty. No nothing is going to come against you. Right? Is that reality? Not at all. So what happens? Once you become a Christian and stuff still goes wrong, who are you likely to blame? Who, are you start to, who, do, you, who do you start to get upset at, uh, at, even though you're a Christian? God, right? So we're not any different than some of these skeptics who are struggling with it. Um, we, we ourselves, um, it hasn't really changed. I don't, I don't know what the input is, but we're in the same boat. So I, wanna, I want you to have that on, on your mind as we talk about this. So when we first ask this question, why does God allow suffering? All right, that is a big question, and it is not easily answered. But w the premise behind it, the, the heart of it, is the assumption that he shouldn't. Do you get that? The assumption is that he should not. Why does he? It wouldn't be a problem if we expected him to. Would it? Wouldn't we would be perfectly fine with it and think this is the way it goes, right? So, but I just want you to have that in your mind. We already are struggling with a presupposition in our minds when we ask this very question, we, as if God owes us a life of comfort, as if God owes us some sort of detachment from the dangers and the risks that are associated with living in a fallen world, right? So we have that in our minds. I love, you know, not to throw everything out right away, but have this in your mind. Very good. Thank you. Uh, have this in your mind. William Lane Craig said this. He says that God's primary objective is not your comfort in this life, but his primary objective is your knowledge of him because that is the only thing that will transcend time into eternity. Any suffering that you experience here will not transfer over, will it? Anyone ever been hurt before? You know, he's just, we're talking about, you know, I got broken bunches of things. Um, and in the moment, it hurts really, really bad, right? But six months later, what, what, what's it like? Not so bad, is it? 
And that's why we keep doing the stupid things we do. But that's, that's a concept that we need to think about. As Christians, if the gospel is true and we go into heaven, all the pain and suffering that we experience here means nothing, does it? And as, as William Lane Craig says, he says that the only thing that transcends here is our knowledge of God because that's what actually gets us into eternity in a positive state. Therefore, God's main objective is not our comfort on this side. His main objective is for us to be led into a deeper knowledge of him, which is salvific. So have that in your mind as we start this conversation. We're going to go more philosophical here, but we've got to be very careful in how we approach this. Uh, it, is, it is a super emotionally charged conversation. Remember we talked about a little bit uh, week one and week two. Sometimes you can talk to people about these types of things. And it can stay um, just intellectual, and you can, you can criticize ideas, okay, and, and people don't get their feelings hurt very easy. You start talking about this stuff, it is very likely to go emotional. It is a very emotionally charged conversation right away. So remember we said we've got we to gotta approach emotional problems a little bit different than intellectual problems, Right? This is one that we have to deal with. But that doesn't mean that there isn't an intellectual side of this. There will be, and we'll deal with that, because there are some people out there who haven't necessarily firsthand experienced pain and suffering, but still would leverage it as an, a reason to not believe in God. And we'll touch on that. So, But I want to um, start off by reading from uh, a, a guy that some of you may have been maybe familiar with, um, Fyodor uh, Dostoevsky, I can't say his name very good because I'm not Russian, um, but is anyone familiar with him and his writings, right? The Brothers uh, Karamazov, like it's, it's a really interesting, weird, but deep um, book. Uh, I'm going to read you an excerpt from it, and it's uh, from the person speaking here is one of the brothers named Ivan. So just listen as I read you this excerpt. He says, he says, I knew a criminal in prison who had, in the course of his career as a burglar, murdered whole families, including several children. But when he was in prison, he had a strange affection for them. He spent all of his time at the window, watching the children play in the prison yard. He trained one little boy to come up to his window and make great friends with him. You don't know why I'm telling you this, do you, Aloysia? My head aches and I am sad. By the way, a Bulgarian I met lately in Moscow, Ivan went on, seeming not to hear his brother's words, told me about the crimes committed by the Turks and Caesarians uh, in all parts of Bulgaria through fear of a general rising of the Slavs. They burn villages, murder, outrage, uh, they rape women, uh, kill children, they nail their prisoners by their ears to fences and leave them till morning. And in the morning they hang them. All sorts of things you can't imagine. People talk sometimes of, of, of bestial cruelty, but that's a great injustice and an insult to the beasts. A beast can never be so cruel as a man, so artistically cruel. The tiger only tears and gnaws. That's all he can do. He would never think of nailing people by the ears, even if he were able to do it. These Turks took a pleasure in torturing children, too, cutting the unborn child from their mother's womb and tossing babies up in the air and catching them on the points of their bayonets before their mother's eyes. Doing it before the mother's eyes was what gave zest to the amusement. Here's another scene that I thought was very interesting. Imagine a trembling mother with her baby in her arms. A circle of invading Turks laugh. They planned a diversion. They pet the baby. Uh, they make it laugh. It laughs. They succeed. But at the moment, a Turk points a pistol four inches from the baby's face. The baby laughs with glee, 
holds out his little hands to the pistol as the Turk pulls the trigger in the baby's face and blows out his brains. Artistic, isn't it? By the way, Turks are particularly fond of sweets. That's what they say anyways. Brother, what are you driving at? He says, I think if the devil doesn't exist, but man has created him, he has created him in his own image, just as he did God then. Isn't that some crazy stuff? So when we're, when we're talking about this, this is the type of things that people experience or know about, and they start to look and they start to ask, where, where was God in all of this, right? Where, where was he? How in the world could he just allow that type of suffering? In our world, we can't, we can't even imagine that, right? So you read something like that, and you think, that can't be real, but that's real. That's real stuff, people doing that to other people. On our side, we are so far from that, right? We talk about persecution. Not even comparable, is it? So, but when you're talking about real people who have real struggles, who have real first-order experience with pain and suffering, they will ask the question, where was God? Why did he do nothing to come to my aid? Um, and this is one of the most powerful arguments um, and one of the most frequent arguments that you will hear um, when you're doing uh, apologetics. Lots and lots of people will pull to this, okay? Lots of people are um, familiar with some of the scientific things, okay? They might dabble in it a little bit, the stuff that we talked about last week, but almost everybody has some experience with this side. You will run into this all the time. And it is very, very important that we at least have a good concept of what we're dealing with. And I want to offer you a couple of ideas uh, how to deal with this. There's no silver bullets, once again. Um, and it takes grace. Um, and it takes, uh, I want to back up real quick. Um, do you see that little scripture there at the bottom? Jude, verse 22. He says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Great words to live by anytime, but how much more in this type of conversation? And have mercy on those who doubt. Um, we don't have time, um, but I wanted to mess with you, so you got lucky. I, I wanted to I wanted to run you through um, some some role playing. Uh, Dr. Um, Sean McDowell has, has, has some good stuff on this. And, and one of the things that he does, and actually I saw him do it too, uh, there was a convention that Keith and I went down to uh, Oklahoma City. Um, it was a youth pastors convention for the Baptist youth pastors. And so uh, Sean McDowell was with us. So we went down there and he gets up there and, and he messes with all of these youth pastors and he plays the role of the atheist, okay? And he kills these guys. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry youth pastors, but he kills them. Um, but it was an interesting thing. At the end of it, he, he likes to ask them how they think they did. Well, of course, you know, not well, uh, for one. But he says, name, say, say two things that describe how you treated me. Very interesting. Now, these guys weren't as bad. But there's lots of times where you see people get so upset. Christians get so upset. They start to get hostile towards the unbeliever. And they start getting ate up with proving their point. And Sean experiences this all the time. And, if you, and he'll, he'll tell you about it um, if you ever run into him. But if you can watch his debates online and stuff, he'll tell you that he runs into Christians who are terribly insensitive 
whenever he's doing this role playing. He goes, and it's really funny because they know I'm a believer. <laughs> but we have to watch this, and I want us to have this in our mind. I went past it, but I want to come back. Have mercy on those who doubt. That should be the heart of every bit of this, right? Um, uh, I'm going to get into this, but I'm going to tell you one story real quick from last night. <laughs> it, was, it was a crazy evening. Went down in the courthouse, um, taking care of some stuff. Uh, nothing illegal. Um, <laughs> uh, but but we're, we're, we're taking care of some things, and uh, they, you get your, your parking validated if you go to Starbucks um, in the parking garage. And so I was like, why not, right? So went over there, um, get my coffee, and uh, Sarah sees someone that she knows from work, and so there's this interesting-looking guy there, and I won't say his name because hopefully one day he'll listen to this stuff. Um, but he's, he's dressed as if he wants you to pay attention to him. He's got this... I say burlap, Sarah says tweed, you, however you want to say it. Um, coat with his collar popped, and he's got all this floral, and, and it's just like, did you, I asked him, did you make that? Because I've never seen anywhere that you can buy something like that. <laughs> all right, so, and he's got literally grandma's pants on. Um, he said it himself, those are his words, not mine. I thought it, but he said it. Uh, with combat boots, um, I, won't, I won't describe him any further, just in case if he ever hears this. Uh, but he's, he's, he's got this way about him, um, which is super obvious. And I looked at him. I made eye contact with him across the Starbucks. I'm like, what is going on? You know, but I turn up the stare because I'm trying not to be that guy. But I'm trying to read him. I'm like, what is that? What's going on? And so um, I go out to go get our parking pass and come back in. And now Sarah's talking to this guy and, and this other lady. I'm like, wait, what's going on? So I sit down and I'm like, let's, let's, let's see what's going on. So we're talking educational philosophy. And he was interested in some things uh, with, with Sarah's old school. And... And, um, but I'm sitting here the whole time, I'm thinking, how can, how can I bring this conversation around? Um, it's a skill, it's an art, right? It's, it's kind of weird to get conversations around a spiritual thing. So I'm sitting here thinking, how, I'm, I want to talk to this guy. Because uh, he kept saying things that gave me a hint that he was spiritual. And he went off on this big rant about meditation and all of these different things. And so I was like, the door's open, here we go. And, um, an hour and a half of us going at it. Uh, but he grew up in the church. He knew the Bible decently well um, and had all the concepts. And, 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 and let, let me tell you, this is, this is something that's convicting. And Sarah and I, we left. And I said to Sarah, it ended well, and I'll get to that in a, in a second. It ended well. Um, but he told us, uh, he's, I, I asked him, I said, man, if you don't mind me asking, what made you leave the church? I want, I want to kind of know what happened. And he says, well, uh, I've always thought of myself as an as a intellectual, a thinker, and nobody had any answers. He goes, I went to my youth pastor, and I asked him hard questions, and he, he, said he either didn't have time for me or just couldn't answer them, and no one I ran into had anything. And he goes, so I felt like it was not substantial. So I went looking. Which isn't always a bad thing, right? So I don't, I don't want to say that that's not a bad thing. We've got we to go on our own journeys. We've got we to gotta search for truth. But that's convicting, isn't it? That's convicting for me. Because now you've got someone in his mid-30s starting over, lost, not just spiritually speaking, lost in life. And how much could change if he would have got plugged in with somebody that could have helped him a little bit, right? Not to say it's all on us. But anyways... Um, he, he, we went on, I'll tell you the end of the story, and I'm going to move on very quickly. 
he said he had all these different ideas about what God is like, and um, I said, I said, man, um, you know, I, I've got to say that I believe that there is a God, and I believe that He is a particular type of a God. Uh, and he goes, well, that's very narrow-minded of you. And I said, okay. Um, and, and he goes, he goes, but don't you think that that's just your your Western thought that you you, you need God to make sense? And I'm like. Well, yeah, I guess maybe I could say that, but um, I think that in every area of our life, we need things to make sense, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I said, if you want to live in that world where nothing makes sense, then I, then I, then I can agree to disagree with you. But I said, you wouldn't. I hope you don't balance your checkbook that way, <laughs> right? Yeah, and he got a little kick out of that. But, but ended up, I said, here's the deal. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says that Jesus Christ is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Okay, C.S. Lewis said that. I said, now let's just take Jesus. The Muslims think Jesus is a particular type of person, maybe a prophet, a good person to listen to, but he's not the prophet. He's not God, all right? The Jews don't believe he's the Messiah, but Christians believe he's actually God. You know what Jesus believed? He was God. (laughs) So back to C.S. Lewis. Either he's a liar and he's just making stuff up, or he's crazy, which is not respectful either, or, right? So you got got these, these, these... uh, things that he, he, he may be who he says he is. And so he goes, well, that's three perspectives of Jesus. Don't you think that there's lots of perspectives? Oh, there's probably thousands of perspectives of Jesus, but they can't all be equally true and contradictory. And he stopped. He goes, I never heard that. <laughs> I said, well, let's stop there. <laughs> so I gave him my phone number. So I'm hoping to continue that conversation. But here's a person who's, who's in a way been hurt by the church, all right? And... Uh, one last statistic. Do you know that the people who leave the church, when you survey them, it generally it's, has something to do with their relationship to their father? It's a really weird deal. It says most people who actually have their faith that's strong throughout their adolescence, those people, when they're surveyed, they have a strong and nurturing, healthy relationship with their father. And they usually will adopt the faith of their father. Isn't that interesting? And here's a guy who grew up without a dad. So I'm just thinking about this statistic, all right? Many things can be said on that. We could get way off topic. But I want you to have these thoughts in your mind that this stuff is real, and you can put it to work right away. And I hope you are. Okay, let's jump into this real quick. So we just read through that. We set the premise. There's basically three places we could go when we talk about an overview of the arguments from evil. And they're in your notes, but... I'm going to say it all up here, too, so um, either way. There's a logical, there's the evidential, and there's the existential problem from evil. And so if we start off with the logical problem, the logical problem from evil attempts to show that evil and God are logically incompatible, and therefore, since evil exists, logically God cannot exist. And what we would say uh, is that these are the positive atheists. Okay, so we'll, we'll open that up in just a second. But here's a quote from David Hume. He says, Speaking about God, he says, is he willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's impotent, right? He's, 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 he's not strong enough. He's impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Like, he's, he's not good, right? He says, is he both able and willing? Then why this evil? And this has been spun off into what we call the O3 God um, argument, that if God is omnipotent, that means he's all-powerful. If he's omnibenevolent, that means he's all-good. And he's omniscient, means he's all-knowing. Then he should be able to, he should want to, and he should know how to 
eliminate evil. Got it? But evil exists, therefore that kind of God can't exist. Does everyone see that? This is a, this is a very common objection, and it's framed like this, that if God is all-powerful, he's all-good, he's all-knowing, why in the world is there evil here, right? So when we talk about that, those who believe um, these types of things are what we call positive atheists. It's not just that they don't believe that we have good evidence for believing in God. They say, actually, on the other side, we have good evidence for disbelieving in God. And this is an argument that they would say is a positive claim, evidence for why we should believe that God does not exist from evil, okay? So have that in your mind, um, and I'm, we're going to come back to this, but let's touch on the evidential problem of evil real quick. And it's basically framed like this. Given the amount and types of evil in the world, it is highly improbable that God exists. So what are our constraints in making this kind of statement? If somebody says that, now don't look at your notes because Chris likes to give you all the answers. Don't look at your notes. I want you to wrestle. I want you to struggle. What do you say to somebody who says that? We'll come back to the logical problem in a second, but let's touch on the evidential problem real quick. Given the amount and types of evil in the world, it is highly improbable that God exists. What's, what's, what's the big constraint here? If someone said that to you at Starbucks, what do you, what do you say? Okay, okay, sure, you can make that argument. If I heard you correct, you said just because you believe he's not good doesn't mean he doesn't exist, right? Okay, and now we're back into that 03 argument again. What kind of God is he? Maybe he's, he does exist, but he's probably not good. That's one thing. But this one right here is really not caring about what type of God exists. Um, it's really saying the God that you think of, given this circumstance, is improbable. Let's, 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 let's see what William Lane Craig says. He says this. He says, we are simply not in a good position to know why God allows various evils to occur. Certainly, many evils seem pointless and gratuitous uh, to us, but how can we be sure they really are? Once we contemplate God's providence over the whole of history, then it becomes evident how hopeless it is for us as limited observers to speculate on the probability of God's having morally sufficient reasons for the evils we see we are simply not in a good position to assess such probabilities with any confidence. Do you get that? What the argument is saying is giving all the different types of evil and the different kinds of evil, I can't prove that God doesn't exist, but it seems likely that he doesn't, that it's improbable. And so what William Lane Craig is pointing out is, is if we are these little specks of dust on this little planet called Earth, in this galaxy, among millions and millions of galaxies, how limited is our perspective? Pretty small, isn't it? Remember last week I said that we can't definitively prove hardly anything? Right? We're, we're, we're in trouble. So what gives us the confidence to say that God doesn't have any good reasons for allowing evil? Therefore, he probably doesn't exist. Anybody knows anything about statistics? You start to look at your data right, to make any uh, hypothesis, conjectures, uh, predictions. What data do we have? We've got a pretty small sample, don't we? <laughs> we don't get to see the whole picture. R reminded of Job. Chris touched on it. 
Does Job ever find out why he went through what he went through? No. He got everything back, but he never got the explanation. Nowhere in Scripture do we see, hey, here's, what, here's why. It's a prime example of our limited perspective. Who are we to question whether or not God has morally sufficient reasons for allowing evil? So therefore, when we talk about just probability, we don't have enough data. Okay, So here's what we would say to someone like that. What data are you looking at to make this probability statement? And ask them. Ask them to supply it. It's going to be pretty hard to actually make a good case for that from the evidential problem. Not many people use that. Not many people really live in that world. Most people live in this world. Most people don't live in the first world of the logical problem of evil. Most people don't live in the second world of the evidential problem of evil. Most people live here in the existential problem of evil. And most of the time when people talk about the problem of evil, what Chris started with, what I started with, was this. Isn't that true? Because this is the most common objection that you're going to hear. So here it is. The basis of this argument is from a personal and experiential evil, right? This specifically has to do with the evil a person has been exposed to firsthand. And so we can get into a couple of things, and, and, and I want to uh, deal with Alvin Plantiga's free will defense. And it's a great, um, it's a great offering to, to deal with the logical problem of evil. Um, but I want to spend one second talking about the existential problem of evil. If somebody, and you tell me, if somebody tells you that they grew up severely abused, okay, and they've experienced all these different tragedies through their, throughout their life, and they say to you, how in the world could a God who is supposed to love his creation allow me specifically to go through that? What do you say to that person? I don't have a canned right answer, but I want to hear from you. What do you say to someone who says that to you? Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Do what? Okay, so we can blame the devil. That's, a, that's always a good option. <laughs> not, not <laughs> uh, you, you could say that. You could say that. Okay, okay, how? How, how was he still with them? Okay. And maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's comforting. Awesome, okay, all right. So, and that, I think those are all great responses, and I think that there's nothing wrong with those. But why did he let it happen to me? Okay, awesome, yeah. Here's, here's what I want you to feel. Go, Paul, yeah, go for it. Okay, awesome. Yeah, you could absolutely say that. And, and, and I know you would have the tender heart to, to gauge whether or not that's, good, that's a good place to say something like that, but absolutely. Um, remember, we started with the premise of when we ask the question, why does God allow it? We're already assuming that he shouldn't. Does that make sense? So that's right along with what Paul's saying, but sometimes people aren't ready to hear that. Sometimes they're not ready to feel that. Here's what, here's what I propose. I propose a very, very light touch. First off, empathy. Feeling for them. 
they do not want a shot fired across their bow <laughs> to prove how illogical and inconsistent they are. It is not what they need right then. In that moment, I believe we as apologists kind of take a break, take a time out, and we start as biblical counselors, <laughs> amateur therapists. Do you get that? And you just love on them. And you just hear them. You listen to them. In that moment, nobody, I say nobody, most people aren't ready for your well-reasoned response in that moment. They want a heart. That's the time where we show them that God is compassionate on the weak and he is, he is on the side of the humble and the, on those who are down. That's our opportunity to show them the hands of Christ because that's going to be a bigger testimony than any logic that we could ever give them in that moment. Now, I say that, you, you think of them like onions. Everyone's an onion. All kind of stink sometimes. There's layers to an onion, aren't there? And you peel it back layer by layer. Remember when we talked early on about having right-sized goals? <laughs> the goal isn't to break the onion in half. The goal is to work on it layer by layer. And that's why I believe true evangelism, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with going door to door. That's, that's step one. But that shouldn't be it. Does that make sense? I don't believe, I used to do it. I used to be a part of full-time evangelism, full-time ministry, but we'd go town to town to town to town, have these big crusades, hundreds and hundreds of people get saved. I never see them again. I'm kind of convicted about that. I'm hoping, you know, in our, it was our goal to set them up with churches, get, go somewhere, get plugged in. But you can't peel back those onions unless you're doing time with them. That's really where you get the opportunity to go to that next level. So just like the guy I was talking to last night, I got his number. Why? Because didn't, we didn't peel everything back yet, have we? No way. Do you think I stopped before I left and I said, hey, now that I've given you some great reasons and you know I'm smart, uh, you ready to receive Jesus? <laughs> no way. That's exactly right. I left that conversation. I went to shake his hand. He gave me a huge hug. All that burlap. I thought right on, man. But this, the point, is when you love people and your objective is not winning the argument, when your objective is to show them the tender heart of Jesus Christ, you're building that bridge. And then, if the opportunity comes, fire away if the relationship can handle it, right? But we got to learn that. You know, as a young guy, I'm still young, but as a very young guy, I did not have that down. I was going to show you how you were wrong in any way I could. Right, because I thought that's that's what you do. <laughs> you, we got to mature, right? So much more can be said about that, but I want that to be your heart as we move into this, which is from uh, a great philosopher, uh, uh, William. Excuse me, William McCurry will have something to say about this. But Alvin Plantinga, this gentleman sitting on this this foldout table right here, uh, Alvin Plantinga is recognized as one of the top philosophers today. He's the John O'Brien Professor of Philosophy uh, Emeritus at the University of Notre Dame. And uh, he's, he's done a lot of incredible work in the field of philosophy. He's a Christian philosopher, um, but like he's at, he's at Notre Dame. He's, he's a bad dude, all right? Uh, if you read his stuff, you think, wow, my brain doesn't work like that. I'm glad somebody's does, but mine doesn't quite work that well. But he's a, he's a great guy, and he wrote what's called a, a, a theodicy. Anyone ever heard of theodicy? You know what a theodicy is? 
A theodicy is basically uh, an attempt to offer a possible explanation for why God allows evil and suffering. It is not a proof. Remember last week we talked about proofs? We can't prove anything. A theodicy is a little bit humble, more humble approach to saying, here's, here's a possibility, all right? Consider this. And that's what we want to do. We want people to consider this. So here's what he has in his free will defense. is a very, very generalized summary. He says basically this, God cannot create free creatures who can never go wrong. That's his premise, but let's break it down uh, with these actual individual premises. First off, and I know it's super small writing, but it's on your paper, so maybe it'd be a good time to look at this. Creatures who are significantly free cannot be causally determined to do only what is right. Would you guys agree with that? Okay. Premise two, following from one. Thus, if God creates creatures who are significantly free, he cannot causally determine them to do only what is right. It follows. Premise three. Thus, if God creates creatures who are significantly free, he must create creatures who are capable of moral evil. So far, so good. Four, thus, if God creates a world containing creatures who are significantly free, it will contain creatures who are capable of moral evil. All right, so we've got this world filled with these people who can go wrong. Five, if God creates a world containing creatures who are capable of moral evil, he cannot guarantee that there will not be evil in that world. Everybody, it's pretty linear, isn't it? So far, so good. Six, thus, if God creates a world containing creatures who are significantly free, he cannot guarantee that that world will not be evil in that world from four to five. And then he goes on, tell the, let's jump over to seven and eight, excuse me, to eight. Jump over seven, go to eight. Thus, God has good reason to create world containing creatures who are significantly free. Thus, God has good reasons to create a world which he cannot guarantee will not contain evil. A lot of philosophy, a lot of rhetoric in there, I know. If we zoom in on these, what are we basically saying? One thing that we're saying is that God can't do anything he wants to do. Now, some people might, yeah, see some frowns. What? <laughs> God can't do just anything. All right? I'll give me a couple examples. I know, it feels weird. I'm going to wait a minute. Let, this, let it hurt a little bit. Is it good? Okay. God can't create a four-sided triangle, can he? No. That's a contradiction, isn't it? Can he create a married bachelor? No. Right? So you, you could come up with all these different ideas of what God can't do because they're illogical. Can God sin? No. Everyone answers, yeah, well, now you guys are on my side, right? So God can't just do anything. There are limits to what God can and can't do. One is he can't do something that is illogical. Two, he can't do something that violates his nature. All right? So, illogical, follow that premise. If you're free, does that mean that there is the chance that you can go wrong? Absolutely. So that's what the, the whole free will defense is, is saying that we see this world in the state that it's in because God saw it fit to create a world in which creatures were significantly free and that meant he could not guarantee that there wouldn't be evil in the world. God can't do both and. He can't create free creatures who are truly free and a world in which they never go wrong. Make sense? Therefore, evil exists, and so does God. They're not logically incompatible based on this logic. All right? Does it solve all of our problems? No. Why me? I could still come back to why me, right? That'll always be one of those things that we've got to struggle with. But our theodicy 
is meant to answer the possibility, okay? Give a possible answer. But someone may respond, I'd gladly trade in a little freedom in exchange for a little less evil in the world. <laughs> what do you say to them? <laughs> so here's the, th here's the thing is, is uh, you know, you can go back to Aristotle's tallest man in the room. Okay, so if we stood up all the people in the room and there's some individual, I'm assuming it would be a man, who's the tallest man in this room. What happens if we take that man out of the room? Who's the next tallest man in the room? Right? There's always going to be the next tallest man in the room. So if we say, hey, God, if you take a little bit of my freedom for a little less evil in the world, you could, you could regress down to the point that a paper cut's the most evil thing in the world. Couldn't you? there will always be something that is the greatest current evil in the world, and we're therefore we're dissatisfied. Why me? You could always do that. So this doesn't work. Um, and I, I want us to talk real quick. I'm going to move over here. When we talk about free will, now everybody's going to get nervous. When we talk about free will, let's leave this over here. We have to think uh, through this real quick, and, and I have to be quick. So when I say that I have free will, all right, what does that mean? Do what I want. Do what I want. <laughs> okay, so in philosophy, there's a million different ways you can go with this. Uh, there's what we call the libertarian, uh, people who, who actually say that we are un unmitigated. There is absolute freedom in our choices, all right? We can choose anything we want to. And there's the compatibilist who would say, uh, kind of. And then there's the determinist. Everyone knows the determinist, right? The determinist would say that no, everything is determined. You're just executing. Just like a computer executes codes, it can't decide whether it does or doesn't. It's going to follow the steps, right? So in between, that's the compatibilist, okay? So you've got the libertarians, um, and then you've got the compatibilist, and you've got the determinist, okay? Most of us actually live here. If we're honest about it, we, most of us live right there. Some of us are crazy and live over here, and some of us are crazy and live over there. That's my personal opinion. Take it what you want. But when we actually talk about free will, um, especially from a biblical perspective, we can start to look at it and say, it doesn't look real good for us, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Let me, let me show you something. So whenever we talk about freedom of the will, what is the will? When I say my will is, or God's will is, what are, we, what are we actually referring to? Okay, desire. Beautiful. So I could, I'm going to throw that in here. I have the freedom of desire. Now, here's the catch. What does that mean? Okay, so I can choose from these things, right? So I can choose. All right, and it's a logical process. All right, and then so from those choices, you have actions, uh, you can have habits, right? You can have all these different things that start to build from there. Here's the thing. Do you get to choose those? Not generally. The, the thing is, is that we can choose from that which we desire, but we aren't able to choose to desire something. Here's the th think about it. Two things. One. How many of you had any control over what time and place you were born? Did any of you guys, do you remember, remember voting on that? I don't either. How many of you decided, you know what, I want to be this type of person? Wouldn't we agree that everyone is built a little differently with different giftings from God? 
Wouldn't we agree with that? Do you remember voting on that? Filling out that check sheet of what you wanted, build, like Build-A-Bear? <laughs> no one remembers that? The interesting thing is when we start to look at most of the things in our life, they happen to us, and we make decisions from there. So the idea is that I have desires, and I do have the, the ability to choose from those desires. But what is our sin nature due to our desires? Yeah, it's not good, is it? So before, you know, the, the technical word is regeneration. Before regeneration, what did we desire? Evil, don't we? But thank God in his redeeming works, he gives us a new will, new desire, so that we can freely choose to do good for his glory. Does, are you following me? So once again, I think we live here. We're compatibilists. I believe that there's certain things that we can choose. We can choose to sin, and we can choose not to sin, but as Augustine says, we cannot choose not to not sin, right? So there's always going to be a time in which you're going to screw up. Why? Because this is a process of God sanctifying and cleaning this up. But I want you to have that in your mind. We are not these autonomous, uh, perfectly free creatures who are capable of thwarting the will of God. Um, we have to look at what is the decree of the Lord, and who am I to thwart it? Scripture says that, the Lord says, that which I decree I shall do, right? There is no stopping him from his decretive will. Now, we can violate his perceptive will, and we're going to get too deep into theology here. But I want you to catch this first off. The free will defense works, but, the, but the, there's a beauty. You know what that beauty is? One day our freedom is going to be a little bit more limited. Think about that. What's heaven like? Not, is there going to be any sin in heaven? Wrestle with that a little bit. I'm not giving you the answer. I don't have the answer. But I think that he's going to do something that we are going to perfectly desire that which is good for all eternity and freely worship and glorify God, not as a machine, but because he gave us new desires. And from those desires, we freely worship and glorify and enjoy God forever. That is awesome. Because on this side of the earth, I hate the fight. I don't know if you can relate, but that war that's always going on, I was telling a coworker, I said, man, I long for death. I'm meeting with a family here in just a minute to go talk about a funeral that I'm preaching at tomorrow. Every time, I'm a little bit jealous of that person. I know this sounds weird, but their fight is over. I'm stuck here <laughs> battling these jacked up desires. And therefore, we see evil all around us because you and I are contributors. So I want you to think about that. It's not just abstract evil. You are making some too. I am making some too. And on the cross, Jesus Christ died for every one of those, all right? So, but let's take a look at this. What is evil? So from the theistic perspective, we have a framework, right? Uh, the theist, good and evil, have a point of reference. With a naturalistic starting point, good and evil are, neither, are either emotionally based or pragmatically driven, both of which fall victim to the reasoning process of our diverse cultures. This is a glaring inconsistency within naturalism. In the idea, and it comes from Robbie Zacharias, the idea uh, is that good is an objective property, all right? Just like light is an objective property. And darkness is a relative property. 
So when we talk like this, I'm going to go back over here real quick. When we talk like this, can we have good without evil? That's your first, that's your first try. I'm going to let it pass. <laughs> Think about this. In the very beginning, before anything bad went, ha went wrong, what was there? Who was there? Yeah. So God <laughs> is good. Was there any evil there? So you want a new answer? So good can't exist without evil, can't it? Because it's an absolute property. Now, the reverse. Can evil exist without good? It's always a relative. It's always a comparison to. So think about light. I got a little picture up here with a door that's cracked open that's bringing light into a room. Light is actually a positive thing. It brings something to the table. Darkness is an absence of something. Does that make sense for all you physicists in the room? You can, you can speak on it later with your friends. Light, we know, is a particle and a wave, right? We struggle with how in the world that works, but we know that about light. What is darkness, physically speaking? It's the absence of those particles and waves. Does, does that make sense? So I can have light without darkness, but darkness is always relative to light. Darkness is an absence of light, just like heat and cold. We can talk about that. But the deal is, is anytime we look at evil, we got to ask the question, compared to what? So the problem of evil actually is a ace up our sleeves in my mind. Because if someone says that I believe God can't exist because of all the evil in the world, what would, the, what would your natural question to them be? Do what? Sure. But what's your definition of evil? That's right. How do, what is evil? Because you're mad at the very thing that gave you the right to call something evil. God, who is the absolute property, who has set the standard of good, and if good is just relative based on any particular culture, then it doesn't actually mean that there's an objective evil in the world. It's always going to wash away. And it's just gonna, just gonna, no one can actually talk about that. So we talk about borrowed capital. Anyone ever heard of borrowed capital? So it's the idea that if, that if, that if someone who's a purely naturalist, who doesn't believe in the spiritual world, they can't actually talk about things like good and evil because they don't really exist, all right? It's just pragmatic. Is this beneficial or is it not beneficial? But you can't really talk about it evil as in we would talk about it, a law above the laws, right? The animals kill each other. Is that evil? No, we don't say that that's evil. But someone nailing someone by their ear to a fence post till tomorrow morning and then I hang them, that's evil, isn't it? But in a purely naturalistic world, why is that evil? Why, why, why ought they do something different? So the very concept of what is good and evil, we have to have a line in which we distinguish between them. Without some objective standard of good and evil, there's no difference between a Mother Teresa and a Hitler, objectively speaking. Do you see that? Therefore, that actually helps us when we're talking with people who are struggling. They say, with all the evil in the world, I don't see how God can exist. The very next question you should ask is define evil. And that'll lead you down to a pretty interesting conversation, but they'll find 
but they don't actually have a good explanation for it. Now, philosophers have struggled, and you can go look at it. They define evil as the undue or unnecessary suffering of any sentient being. But this still doesn't mean anything. Much, much more can be said about that, but we have to finish here. So I'm going to leave you with, this is the book club for this week. These are the guys that, I'm, that I was hanging out with as I prepared this. Um, Why Suffering by Robbie Zacharias. Hard Questions, Real Answers by William Lane Craig. And then you can just look up The Free Will Defense by Alvin Plantinga. Um, uh, there's not a specific book that I have to reference for that, but you can go Google that and find some good stuff on it. Thanks, guys. You know, um, what a great night. And, and I want, I pray that this helps expose the weakness of the philosophy of our world. Because, you know, our kids, our schools, everything on the History Channel is coming up from a purely naturalistic perspective. And, and, and I want you to see how that breaks down. And it just does. You know, I, I want to challenge you this Sunday to come this Sunday. Bring somebody with you. Uh, this week, uh, this Sunday, uh, Frank Turek is going to be here. He's one of these guys that he's written a book. It's going to be available Sunday called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Uh, it's a phenomenal read. It's one of those uh, ones I would challenge you to get. Um, uh, we don't get anything for pushing this book. He's a good, he, this guy's a great thinker, and I want to challenge you to be here. He's going to be going through a uh, reason for the hope that we have. So he, he's like, uh, uh, he, he kind of is on that circuit that Robbie Zacharias is on. He goes to college campuses and, and uh, ministers in, incredibly well. So uh, I really hope that you come on Sunday, bring somebody with you that doesn't know Christ, maybe someone that, uh, the Lord brings across your path a friend, a family member. Uh, one you're loving on uh, would be a great opportunity to, to kind of continue that dialogue with them. And so, uh, but we're so grateful that you were here tonight. And, and next week's our last week in this study. And then uh, Brad wanted me to remind you that our classes begin uh, a, a week from next, so in two weeks. Our classes begin. There's a list uh, of all the options out there on. Uh, and so we'd encourage you to take advantage of that. There's great stuff for your kids, uh, for both uh, your uh, children, preschool children and students on Wednesday nights. So we want to encourage you to take advantage of those classes and, and just look at some of those ways to keep growing spiritually. Uh, Brad, anything else about those classes you want to say? Okay. Hey, thanks for being here tonight, and uh, God bless you. Have a great day. See you.